Hey, real quick, we're going to pray. We have many, many of us have friends, family, ministers over in Israel. And in particular, we want to pray for them um, and for their safety. Um, as we've said many times, we've talked about many times, as, as Tony Evans brilliantly put it, and in any culture, politically, Christians are the referees. We're not this team. We're not that team. Our job is to is to support those who are following the rules, who are doing things the way that we think God would want that done. And so that's going to be the case under any condition. It's, it's always something that we would say, um, and having been over there many times, and we, again, like I said, we have many friends over there. Um, historically, there are no innocent parties in Israel. That's not, that's not the way that works. It's, a, it's a, been a place of a lot of war and a lot of conflict for a long, long time. Um, but, but we do on have so many who we love over there, and it is our desire that God would bring peace um, to that holy land, um, if for no other reason, so we can go back and keep learning and, and growing um, with our experiences there. So um, let's pray together for God to bring peace uh, over there. Father, um, you, uh, you love peace. And uh, though there are times for war and times for conflict, um, you love peace and your son, one of your son's many titles is the Prince of Peace. And so we pray to you that, that the Prince of Peace would bring peace to that land. Um, Lord, I, I know that um, we, we have, though we are allegedly founded on Christian principles here, it's not like we've figured it all out and we've not figured out how to live in your peace every day here in our own individual lives, much less as a nation. But Lord, we ask that you would bring peace to that troubled part of the world. Um, your peace, the kind of peace you give. The kind of peace that may not make sense to the rest of the world, but it's the kind of peace that never goes away. Lord, I pray we will learn to live in that as well, and we do so in your Son's magnificent name. Amen. Um, okay, so picking up in 1 Samuel um, chapter 26, um, if you're new or haven't been here in a while, we're going systematically through 1 Samuel. We've been at it for about a year, um, going through 1 Samuel so far, and we are in chapter 26. Um, going through, unpacking um, what's being shown to us here, what we're seeing here, and uh, today we're going to go through that as well. Chapter 26 is so similar, as we're about to mention, to chapter 23 that we're going to be able to move through it relatively quickly, but still that's, that's fun to look at too. Chapter 26, verse 1, then the Ziphites, um, whose name means tar or pitch, something dark, came to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakalah, meaning the dark hill? which is on the east of Jeshimon, Jeshimon meaning isolation. So again, there's a clear picture being painted for us. David is in hiding in the darkest parts of Israel to stay away from Saul. This has been the case now for several years um, that David has been on the run from Saul. But if you were here just a few weeks ago when we did chapter 23, or if you've read back through it recently, you're thinking, wow, that sounds super familiar. Um, it should sound super familiar. Um, in fact, it's so similar to chapter 23 um, that some people think that, chap that this is the same story being recounted from a different narrator. Um, possible. Um, that's not the conclusion I have reached, um, not my opinion, but there are those who think that. Let me show you um, kind of why both sides of it. Um, we've talked about how Samuel is not written chronologically, how it's not always written linearly. It's not written to a good American Western audience the way we would want it written. That's because it wasn't written for a good American Western audience. It was written by a Jewish audience 3,000 years ago. And so it's a very different way of looking at the world. That's part of why we gather and we teach and we discuss and we unpack these things. So 1 Samuel 23, starting in verse 19, has this verse. 
Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now, not identical. Uh, chapter 23 said east of Jeshimon, not south, although we're about to see that Saul encamps east of Jeshimon. Um, and they don't mention the strongholds in chapter 23, so maybe, maybe they're enough different. I can see the overlap, as I'm sure you can, but not exactly the same. And the story diverges pretty quickly um, in other ways. Um, verse 2, so Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men in Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Again, very similar to 23. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakala, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul had come after him out into the wilderness, David sent spies, sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. So again, Saul takes his 3,000 favorites. Um, he learned the lesson of taking everybody once. When he took everybody to chase David, the Philistines attacked almost immediately. So he learned, okay, I need to take just a handful of people, just this number. That should be enough, he thinks, to take on David's 600. It, it, I'm convinced it would not have been if that had ever been a pitched battle. But David finds where they are. Now, this is a huge issue in the days before satellites and airplanes and, and that kind of stuff. If you knew where your enemy was and he didn't know where you were, you pretty much had control. And that's what the situation is here. If you've studied uh, military history, the Civil War and others, it's amazing to see stories of, of armies marching almost next door to each other around a certain mountain or something and missing each other by just a few minutes. And the whole thing, the whole battle is dictated by who knows where the other army is. There's so many stories like that. So this was a huge problem. David's spies have found Saul's army and Saul has not found David's army. Verse 5. Then David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. <clears throat> and David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Again, picture the rocky wilderness area, which we've looked at. We'll look at it again in a minute. This is the wilderness of Judah, of Judea. You've got, this is in the area of the Dead Sea, uh, Masada, other places. This is, this is a very... A rocky, hilly type of country. There are specific areas that are even more so, as we'll look at in a second. So David sneaks into this camp. Now, here's what's wild. He sneaks into the camp of 3,000 men at night. And this is another one of those places where I feel like, you know what, I could have used another chapter here. I, I, would, I would like to know about that. Like, what, well, how? How did he sneak through 3,000 men? He and how, how did they sneak through that? <coughs> I think that's an amazing picture. <coughs> he sees this is going to happen. This is what's going to, this is going to play out. Let's look at how it plays out. But, but this is the, we've met Abner. Abner has been introduced to us back in chapter 14. Just a quick verse says he was the commander of Saul's army. We see, he seems to be Saul's cousin. We learn. Um, he it also is the one who introduces David to Saul after the slaying of Goliath. So if you remember, after David kills Goliath, he's walking around as like 11 or 12 year old with a giant giant's head dripping all the gore that it would have had. And, and as he's doing that, and, and, and Saul says, who is this kid who just killed this giant? Well, it's Abner who knows who David is. And we've unpacked how confusing that passage is in its own way. But here he is, the commander sleeping right next to the king with 3,000 men encircling them. Verse 6, then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruah, <coughs> who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Now again, how do he sneak through 3,000? We'll get a hint in a second. 
how, why it worked, but just to know. So one of the questions we always ask as we seek to unpack a Bible passage and um, we do, to do the right job of hermeneutics, the art and science of studying scripture, of studying holy writing, is that first we've got to understand the context, what's going on, what's the situation. So we ask certain questions like, who are these people? Does it matter? Um, this is not Ahimelech the priest. This is Ahimelech the Hittite, a different man. Um, we've, we've got that in our head that this is, this, is, this is a man, one of the Hittite culture. Now, the Hittites were a warlike, kind of like the Philistines, were a powerful warlike nation just north of Israel. What's wild is they didn't build anything <clears throat> much. They didn't write much down. They were more of a warlike culture. So for a long time, there was no archaeological evidence that the Hittites even existed. Because of that, you actually had many um, people who were <coughs> critical of Scripture who would describe the Hittites as this fictional um, culture from the Bible, that they didn't really exist anywhere else. And then um, people started finding evidence, archaeological evidence of the Hittites. And I know this is going to come a huge shock to you, but it turns out the Bible was exactly right in its description of this culture. Um, they are now told, no one denies the existence of the Hittites. We now have tons of archaeological evidence that has been found. They did, in fact, rival even the Assyrians and the Egyptians at one point. And they had drifted, many of them had drifted south and lived in Canaan. <coughs> Remember, we talked about David tended to draw criminals and, 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 and wannabes and that kind of stuff. And so this may be Hittite criminal, people who were criminals in their own culture who had come south and were now hiding with David in Canaan. Um, so... However, whoever he is, Ahimelech the Hittite, this is our only mention of him um, really scripturally, um, he did not want to go down into the camp. Now that's not, not dumb. Like that's who would want to walk down into the camp of 3,000 people who are trying to kill you. We don't know if he actually said no. <coughs> Sorry, got a little call. Or if, if Abishai just responded more quickly, if he was just the first to respond, we don't know what happened, but he didn't. This is our, all, this is our introduction to Abishai. Abishai, we get to know him in David's story quite a bit. We learn in 1 Chronicles 2 that he is David's cousin. And typically when we see Abishai, here's what you'll always see when you see Abishai. When you see Abishai, he is offering to kill someone. This is Abishai's stick. This is what he does. Um, right now he's going to offer to kill Saul. Later he's going to offer to kill Abner, Shimei, and then a guy named Ishbimenob. <clears throat> I can't say it either, but not kidding. That you'll see that it's over in Second Samuel twenty-one. He is always offering to kill whoever needs killing, in his opinion. Verse eight. Then Abishai says to David, "God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not need to strike him twice." David said to Abishai, "Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless?" Remember, this is the spear of Saul. It has been made famous by Saul's temper. Several times it has been thrown at David. It's been thrown at Jonathan. Would there be any better justice than for Saul to be executed by Saul's spear? Especially by one of David's men. This just seems like a perfect setup, right? This is a perfect setup. This is just like him going into the cave to relieve himself right in David's presence. One shot, and Ab unlike Saul, Abishai says, I won't miss one shot, that's all it'll take. I'll pin him all the way to the ground. Let me, just, let me just adjust the spear. It's here, it's stuck into the dirt. Let me just adjust it to the left about four feet and stick it back down into the dirt through Saul. We'll all be good. See, it's all great. This is significant, and David's response to this, again, is such a lesson for us that I want us to take a moment and unpack it a little bit. We can, uh, we can wrap our brains around this idea. Taking a human life is God's 
call. He never, he never delegates the decision to us. Now, he may delegate the action through execution or through war. The action of taking life, he may delegate to us. But the decision as to who gets to live and who gets to die, he doesn't ever delegate that to us. <clears throat> taking human life is God's call. And especially when God has put someone in a position that even if we don't love them, we have to respect and honor the position that God has put them in. We at least, if we don't love them the way we should, we'd at least need to love the fact that God has put them there. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, references this in regards to church. It's a nasty tendency that we have to complain about people who are in church with us, right? Well, I don't go to church anymore because of those hypocrites that are in church. And, and the problem is, as, as, as Bonhoeffer points out, the problem is that gives us judgment over God's decision as to who to put in our church. That we're going, oh God, man, you really blew it when you put this person in our church. What were you thinking? That was a huge mistake on your part. They annoy me. They bug me. They irritate me. They make me have feelings I don't like. Therefore, you made a mistake in putting them in church with me. And Bonhoeffer says, keep in mind, it may be that God is saying, uh-huh, that's what I need to carve off that annoying trait in you. Is someone like the Jesus and that person may need to carve off the, the you in you. So, so be, be recognizing that. It doesn't mean we don't love them, but we still may have to love that God has put them there. This teaching is one of the most important biblical teachings for Christians, one of the most important Christian ethics. Listen to me. It's one of the most important ones. We must focus like a laser on the Holy Spirit's teaching to us, not to the people around us. We need to be focused on what God is teaching us. Is Saul's sin rampant? Yes. Is Saul's sin absolutely irresponsible? Yes. Should he be removed from office? Apparently. Is that David's, has God given David that job? He has not. Therefore, it's not David's job. This is a horrific tendency in us as human beings. I, I laugh constantly as a student of humanism. It makes me laugh to think that anyone is still a humanist who has met humans. Certainly anyone who has studied history, right? How have, you not give, how have people not given up on that? Listen, the whole humanism thing, not working out so well. <clears throat> My faith in us is not working out super well. It just seems like it doesn't get any better. This is vital. When we must focus on a laser, like for example, consider some of our favorite passages like Colossians 3, um, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Here's a funny thing I've noticed about that first one. Wives, <clears throat> hupotasso, an active, passionate, powerful, devoted word. Hupotasso, wives, submit yourself, devote yourselves to the husband as is fitting in the Lord. I am absolutely incapable of applying that verse to my life. There's nothing in that verse that applies to me. So here's what I probably need to do is not try to apply that to somebody else's life. How many men would be like, oh yeah, this kind of verse, that's my life verse right there, buddy. I want that cross-stitched on a doily and sitting, I'm like, I want that above my bed. Like, it's my favorite verse. Wives, submit to your husbands, right? Or the Ephesians 5, as to the Lord, that we go, yeah, that's, I like that one. That's a really good one. Let's see, skipping, skipping, skipping. The next verse, though, is a really good one for me to try to apply. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Man, why, what is it about us that we always want to apply someone else's message to them? Is it just because it keeps us from focusing the attention on us? Is it just that easy? This is especially true when we're talking in authority structure. Colossians 3, the next passage, 
starts with this, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service like people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart fearing the Lord to bond servants. Shouldn't this passage be about, hey, end bond servanthood? Isn't that what it should be about? By the way, bonds, there's nothing wrong with bond servanthood. If the, if the grid ever goes down, we're all going to become big fans of working for food again, which is what bond servanthood was. But Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Notice this teaching. This is a very clear teaching to the bond servant. You need to obey your master. You, what kind, but, well, well, hey, but, uh, but my master's kind of an idiot. Didn't ask. Wasn't part of the conversation I was having. Godly relationships, especially authority relationships, must always live in the space of me doing my part. When I'm under authority, I need to make sure I'm honoring God as a servant, even if my authority is failing, like David's is. That doesn't mean there's not a time to, to confront or to, to deal with those issues. That's not, that's not what that's about. In fact, it's the opposite. If I love my authority enough, I may confront them in love. And boy, I tell you what, there's as an authority person, but you being, be, me being confronted, someone confronts me in love, I'm all about it. That is, that is boy, that's a gift. That's someone just picking on authority. That's, that's not valuable. My guess is there's other things that need to be done. I need to make sure I'm honoring God, even by authority. When I am the authority, I must honor God as a leader, even if my servant is failing. David is dedicated to being super careful, doing an excellent job, being an excellent servant, even when Saul is doing a terrible job being king. What an amazing picture. If you're a child, what an amazing picture. Students to serving and looking to your parents, even when they fail. So we, we often think like, oh, when they fail, that somehow justifies me, right? Oh, when they do something wrong, now I'm free to say and do whatever I want to do. I was 17 when I realized that God was going to someday have a conversation with me. I don't know why it came to me at 17, but it did. At 17, I remember very distinctly when God came to me, gave me the vision that someday he was going to ask me about me as a son. And then if I go like, yeah, but have you seen these parents? He'll be like, yeah, I know them. They'll have their turn with me. Right now we're talking about you as a son. Someday God's going to call me and ask a conversation with me. Hey, let's talk about you as a shepherd, as a pastor of these people. And I'm going to go, did you meet those people? <laughs> did you see how unlovable some of them were? Right? And God's going to say, hmm, see, that defense doesn't fly. I'm not talking to you about them. That'll be my conversation with them. I'm going to talk to you about you as a husband. I'm going to talk to you about you as a son, as a father, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a counselor. As a... We're going to have those conversations. Those are the conversations you and I are going to have. God's going to someday have a conversation with David with his role as not king. Don't worry, he'll have a conversation with Saul about him as king. That's God's problem. David's going to see that for a little while. <laughs> for a little while. Let's talk about this. Some of them, have you met these people when we go, that, that argument that are, these people aren't that nice to me. My wife won't get on board. The church is full of hypocrites. Now let me be clear. This argument that people make is the same one that's been made all along. Oh, but look at this wife you gave me. She's why I ate the fruit. Oh, but look at this serpent that tempted me. That's why I ate the fruit. See, it's not going to fly. It never has, and it never will. Now, to be clear, our merit will never be enough. I don't want to mis make people misunderstand this. Merit, effort, and work can never give us a right relationship with a holy God. Only he can do that. 
Only he can do that. Our one and only defense when it comes to salvation will be the person and work of the one and only magnificent Son of God, Jesus Christ. But in him, through the power of the same Spirit that was empowering David, we have the freedom to seek to obey him in all things and the things he has called us to. Not necessarily to try to create obedience to him in others. It was, it was a shocking moment reading in a book on prayer, the book saying, God, it was a prayer for husbands. And I read it, and there was a line. The whole price of the book was worth this one prayer. God, I pray that my wife will hear from you, not me. I was like, oh, I've been doing it wrong. Right? I just wish Ginger would hear from me. Why would I want Ginger to hear from me when she could hear from, I don't know, God? That seems like a jump. This, is, this was shocking to realize this is... This is what God has called us to. And David exemplifies this beautifully well in this chapter. He is going to exemplify exactly the opposite in the next chapter. We'll get there in a second. So let God and let the other person wrestle. Of course, we may love a brother or sister enough to talk to them about it, but we don't want to interfere with God's work. Verse 10, and David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now take the spear that is in at his head and the jar of water, and let's leave. Verse 12, so David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. We're not going to, but what an interesting situation that God has put David in, almost like Okay, I'm giving you this decision. You get to make a decision here. Verse 13, Then David went to the other side and stood off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. That sounds confusing, so let's do a little Bible geography. Just for a second. So let's get those pictures. This is the desert, of, this is the wilderness of Ziph. This is an ancient, uh, an old sketch of it. Do you see how you could stand on a hilltop across from someone else and be a long way from them? Imagine somebody up here and somebody over here well, you can stand up here and yell, and if they send the army to get you, by the time the army gets all the way around to you, you're gone. That's exactly what David is doing in this situation. David and his men go somewhere else. You can imagine Saul's men up here on the hillside. David comes around over here. That's the picture. You can see Masada, where we go sometimes. I think we've got a, a, an image, a vid, little video of us. We shout. This is called the echo wall. We shout at it. Uh, And you can hear it echo like there's people out in the wilderness. I think the video didn't repeat it. Okay, so next. Um, so you can see how it's so close, and yet it's so far away. It would take forever to get over there, and yet it was so close, the Romans launched catapult stones from that hilltop at Masada. So this, you can see, this is part of the, the wilderness again. You see how someone up here is a long way from someone over here. That's the imagery being created here. So David goes over there on the other side of a, a thing like this, a valley like this. <clears throat> Verse 11, in the dark, it's still dark, I think, and he begins to shout, saying, will you not answer, Abner? Hey, Abner! Hey, somebody wake up, Abner! Abner answers, who are you who calls to the king? David says to Abner, are you not a man? Who is like you in all of Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, our Lord, your Lord. This thing that you've done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the, the, your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Look around. 
You see Saul's spear? How about his water pot? See where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head? You can imagine Abner and Saul looking around and going like, wait, where, where is my spear? Where's the, wait, where's my water pot? Right? David is showing how someone who's supposed to be totally faithful to Saul failed. Whereas David, who allegedly is an enemy of Saul, saved his life. David protected Saul in this situation where Abner, who's supposed to be protecting Saul, failed. Abner does not, not surprisingly, Abner doesn't respond. Saul does. Saul recognized David's voice and says, is that your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does the Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is in my hands? Now, therefore, let the Lord, my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Simply put, this is, listen, all 3,000 soldiers can hear this. Saul, if there's a problem between you and me that has been inspired by the Lord, the Lord has created a solution for that. We go to the tabernacle, we offer sacrifice, we restore our relationship, we make things right. I'm game, how about you? No? Well, if it wasn't the Lord, then it means it was a human. If it's a human, I call down curses upon them. If it was a human who inspired you to this, I call down a curse, because that human is essentially saying, I should leave God's people, and I should leave God's land, and I should worship other gods, and that is blasphemous. Anyone who would tell another Jewish person to worship another god is a blasphemer. <clears throat> now, we know that Saul's voice is the voice that Saul is listening to. Saul is the inspiration for his hatred of David and no one else that we've seen. So Saul says, <clears throat> verse 21, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. One of the reasons I think this is a totally different account is because last time David was more focused on Saul saving David. This time, he's, it feels to me like he's given up on Saul. You know what? I hear you. I hope the Lord saves me. Saul said to him, blessed be you, my son. David. It makes me, creeps me out every time he calls him his son. Um, although he tried to kill his own son too, so I guess that's not surprising. You will do many things and you will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. So remember in chapter 23, we talked about the abuse cycle, the addiction cycle, where there's this acting out, this, this inappropriate behavior, the anger, the rage, the, the murderous stuff on, on Saul's part. And then there's this emotional break. We feel all the big feelings and we make all the big promises. And then we really don't follow through all that well, <clears throat> which builds up tension. And that then causes us to act out again. And, and so we have all these big feelings and we make all these big promises and we, and we just work around this cycle. All, almost all of us do it about something. Um, Lord willing, it's something that we can flatten out and someday die of old age before we make it back around the circle again. 
But you remember that's, that's what's going on here. We talked about that in detail in chapter 23. Does David buy it this time? No, he doesn't. He didn't buy it last time. He certainly isn't this time. In fact, his next thought is going to be eventually one of these times, he's going to find me and kill me. This, this cycle is going to continue until he finally gets me. And now David is going to do the exact opposite of what he just talked about. How very human of him. He's going to lose totally sight of God's faithfulness, and instead he's going to seek his own salvation, the very sin Abigail helped him protect him from in the last chapter. His plan is going to get very dark quickly. Again, have you met us? How human of him. I trust in the Lord, but you know what? I've kind of got my own plans too. I've got some brilliant ideas that I've been working on, and I'm going to do these. And by the way, his plan, like ours, gets dark very quickly. David's creativity is a little lacking. He's now going to head back to Achish, the king of Gath in Philistia. Tried this once before. It was a total failure. So this time he's going to do it better because that's how that works. Um, only, only those who are, again, radically ignorant of themselves can find solution in themselves. But that's all of us. Chapter 27. Yes, we're going to get two chapters today. Then David said in his heart, <clears throat> now one day I'll perish at the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me and any longer within the borders of Israel, and I will escape out of his hand. So David arose and went, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. He goes back to this king, apparently. Last time he pretended to be mad to escape him. This time, apparently, Achish is happy to have 600 hired killer mercenaries working for him. It must have been very clear even to the Philistines that Saul and David's relationship was absolutely broken. They were not in alignment at all. So anyone will interpret David as an enemy of Saul at this point. Achish does. Okay, this is a powerful man. He's a dangerous man. As long as he's on my leash, that's exciting to me. Verse 3, And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man in his household, with David and his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. We'll unpack that at another time. Um, and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. It worked. Saul gave up. Saul no longer has the power, nor Samuel enough, because um, Samuel's dead. Samuel's the only person who's ever gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Philistines and wiped them out. Samuel's dead. Saul does not have that power. He doesn't have the power to invade Philistia to, uh, to chase David. So for now, David is out of his reach. So David says to Achish, if I, be if I find favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So David pretends that out of humility, he's like, listen, I'm a nobody. Why should I get to live with the king? The truth is David wants his own place to work, not under Achish's scrutiny. His plan is now adjusting. So he goes to Ziklag. A little more Bible geography for you here. There's Ziklag. This is Philistia. Now for those of us who are students of Israel and of its history, you'll notice something significant. Here are the main Philistine cities. There's five. Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. There they are. Those five cities are the main Philistine cities. This is part of why to this day Israel is happy to let the Palestinians have their own government system within this region, which we now call the Gaza Strip. This was Philistine country for a long, long time, for all, almost all of Israeli history, this was Philistine country. <clears throat> so they're more than happy to let um, Gaza run itself 
The problem is, of course, we, what happens, which we've seen recently, that can happen, and it's a very complicated situation. But what I want you to see is Ziklag originally was part of the, the promise to Simeon, the tribe Simeon, but apparently at this time, the Philistines have taken it all. So they've taken a much larger area. Ziklag is now under their control. And Achish is smart. Just like the Egyptians put the Philistines here to block their enemies, the Philistines are now putting David and Ziklag to block their enemies. So that when Israel wants to fight against them, they've got to hit David first. So this is, this is very savvy. It's brilliant. David is a barrier and a thorn to Saul and to the Israelites. At least Achish thinks so. And David lets him think so, essentially by well, lying. Verse 7. The number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the, Gersh, the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the lands of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where did you make a raid today? David would say against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. Okay, one more map. My map people are happy today. Here we are in Ziklag, somewhere in here, right? We see, we're not sure for sure, but somewhere in here. So here's what's happening. David and his 600, they go out and raid a city. Now who they're raiding are the enemies of Israel, the Gerzites, the Geshurites. The Amalekites, again, more proof that the Amalekites were not actually wiped out way back in chapter 13 or whatever it was. That when we looked at that way back there, it, they weren't actually fully wiped out. That was war language. We've talked about that. Like when, if I say, man, the cowboys really killed the giants, you're not worried that they're all dead because that's sports language. There was war language. We wiped out every man, woman, and child does not literally mean they wiped out every man, woman, and child. And all the listeners at that time would have known that. Um, however, here we have, so that's what he's doing. He's raiding these people. These are typically um, allies of Philistia and enemies of Israel. So he comes back with a bunch of goats and sheep and whatever and no people. Part of the, his pillaging does involve people. He comes back. Um, he comes all the way back to the Philistia land. He, reaches, he goes to Gaza. He brings all this stuff to his boss, Achish. And Achish goes, where did you get all this stuff? <clears throat> and David says, oh, I was out fighting the Jeremelites. Those are, those are descendants of Judah. The Kenites, descendants of Moses. The Judah, area of Judah. That's where I've been raiding. And Achish is happy with that. Oh, good. Well, he's raiding his own people. They really are going to hate him now. If they didn't hate him before. Now they're really going to hate him. Saul's really going to hate him. The people of Israel are really going to hate him. And so David's just lying. He's just flat lying to Achish about this. And you go, well, it's war. Maybe it's appropriate to lie. Maybe. It's hard to know, but he's fighting the enemies of Achish rather than the enemies of Israel. How does he cover up this lie? You go like, well, gosh, that's going to be, I mean, surely someone's going to come to Achish and go, I'm a survivor of one of David's raids. He was not, he didn't, he didn't, it, I'm, I'm from, I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of the Gershites. I don't, I do you, uh, he attacked us down there. And, and Achish is going to go, wait a minute, I thought you were attacking Judah. You're attacking, wait, you're attacking our <coughs> allies, not the enemies of, not my enemies? So David has a clever plan for avoiding people ever coming to Achish and telling him the truth, and that is, he just slaughters them all. Many people describe this as the darkest period in David's life. This is what he would do, verse 11, and David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should come, um, tell us about him, so, so and so what David has done. 
Such was his, what, what a funny euphemism here, what a cute little word here, custom. All while he lived in the country of the Philistines, and Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to the people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. Well, it worked. David, through his bloodthirstiness and direct dishonesty, manages to convince Achish that he is loyal. Now, unless God commanded this, and this passage in no way indicates this, this was not morally right. Initially, God sent his people into this Canaan land to drive out or destroy the inhabitants. That war is long over. I think, therefore, the, the rules of Deuteronomy 20, if you want to go look at them on your own, the, rule, the rules of war that God gives his people in Deuteronomy 20 should apply. They include things like always offering uh, um, a terms of peace first. They include things like carefully protecting all of the innocents in a combat situation. Those were God's commands to his people, and David is ignoring those. Some describe this as David's darkest days. He's been chased out of his land. He's trying to stay somehow loyal to his people. May he's trying to stay loyal to God with his zeal, but if so, I think he's totally missing the mark. I agree it's a dark time. David's men have gone from protectors with Nabal to just killers. And, and by the way, not some noble effort. It is, doesn't even imply that David was doing this somehow to honor God's command to drive the people out of Canaan. It is clear that his motivation here is nothing more than self-protection. And I think we see David has gone from, no, no, I trust in the Lord to protect me from Saul. I trust in the Lord to take care of Saul. Saul's not my problem. I will do what is right before the Lord to, you know, I've got a new plan. I'm going to go down to Philistia and serve a pagan king and I'm going to slaughter a bunch of people to cover up my lies. Doesn't that sound just like us? David had said God would take care of him, but the next thing you know, he's saving himself again. Remember, there's always a counterfeit. There's always a counterfeit. There's always a strategy that makes sense to us. Sometimes it seems like wisdom, and maybe sometimes our ideas are wise, but here's the deal. Church, when we have a clever idea, when we've got a new vision, when we've got some cool new insight, we always initially should be very suspicious of it. Our strategies are often not God's strategies. Our plans are not his plans. Our ways are not his ways. Now, they might be. Even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every once in a while, right? But the truth is we always need to come at that with skepticism. Um, I admire and have ambition to be a man after God's own heart which is a title God gave David. It's a title only God could give, only God could bestow it. I long for it someday. And I find comfort that God loves and chooses and calls and empowers a man as inconsistent as David. I don't know about you, but I find great comfort when God calls people who aren't worthy because I'm not worthy. But I also long to be more reliably faithful than David seems to be. I would aspire to be faithful like he is in those moments when he rescues Saul, slays Goliath, listens to his wife Abigail. But I aspire to be faithful the week after those victories too. And that's tough for us. A steady investor in his kingdom, not so much up and down, but more up and steady and up and steady. That'd be great. I mean, I'm terrible at it, just like you are, but that would be great. Jesus tells a parable about this in Matthew 25. I'm going to just reference the opening of it. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his ability, and then he went away. We call the word, we use the word talent in English to mean the gifts and skills and whatever that God has given us because of this. This, this parable is what gives us that word in English. It literally just meant uh, 20 years worth of work, the money that comes from 20 years worth of work. 
The servants who are given five talents and two talents invest them well and receive a return. As we'll read in a moment, most potently, they experience a new description, good and faithful servant. See, God, God saves us when we put our faith in him. Our merit can't do it. Only just to, to rely on him like an orphan seeking a father. We are, we are like orphans standing outside of the orphanage, shouting to the orphans who are still inside, come out. There is a father, there's a daddy Warbucks who wants to buy us all. He has already paid the price. Come out and accept the free gift of his family forever, of his kindness and goodness and salvation and grace forever. Join us. That's the call to salvation. I would encourage anyone in here who has never accepted that free gift, I hope you will. Once there, once in the family, our next goal is to hear these words, good and faithful servants. We sing and pray the concepts of an ancient hymn at each of our leadership board meetings. So every other Wednesday or so, our leadership board meets to pray through and discuss things in our church, and we, we open with this concept. I want you to look at how these words exemplify this, that we look to him who is faithful to be everything to us. It's, called, it's a, a hymn called Be Thou My Vision. <clears throat> and look at the extreme language of this hymn. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not, in other words, nothing, don't be anything else to me, except that you're that to me, save that thou art. You are my best thought. When? By day or by night. Waking or sleeping. That your presence is my light. Be my wisdom, my true word, ever, I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, and I thy true Son, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. In a moment, I want to lead our church through this song. It has been sung for at least, we know historically, 1,500 years by Christians. We have copies of this hymn in Gaelic in Ireland in the 400s. It's, it is that ancient. And in a moment, I want us to commit as a church to promise to asking God to be our vision and our best thought. And our wisdom. Not our thoughts, not our riches, not our opinions, but His. So if you will, stand. And this time of invitation that we have is meant to be based on the assumption, hey, there's something going on in my heart right now. The Holy Spirit is speaking to me. I need to step up in my faithfulness, or I've never accepted His faithfulness. I'm still working on my own merit. Like maybe I can grunt out this salvation and holiness thing. Good luck. You won't. Um, again, have you met you? It's not going to happen. In this situation, Christ is calling to us to offer us this free gift. And once we've accepted this free gift, then we get to live that out and see that in our lives. So I want to lead us in that in a moment. <clears throat> if, you've, if you want someone to pray, you're welcome to come here. We'll pray. Paul will be up here to pray with you. Or, I, or, or you can head over in the corner and pray with somebody over there. We've got um, uh, people who will pray with you. Any, any, stop any of the members who you know. We'd be happy to pray with you, to talk with you. Um, uh, if you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, um, you can do that this morning. If you've already been through that, we'd love to have you. Um, that's for sure. And then as we sing, I want you to be in consideration of this, these, these last words from Jesus' parable. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And he, had received the he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more saying, Master, you delivered me five talents, and here I've made five talents more. And the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had the two talents. He had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two more. And the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
enter into the joy of your Lord. So as we sing now together, my prayer would be that we would ask God to be these things for us and nothing else.